episode of the Biting Truth podcast is brought to you by IGA Supermarkets, where the locals matter. Hello and welcome to the Biting Truth podcast. This is a weekly podcast that aims to cut through all of the confusion and misinformation in the nutrition space to give you up-to-date, cutting-edge nutrition advice. I'm Anna Debenham and with me is co-host Alex Parker. Hello, everybody. And we're the dietitians and founders of The Biting Truth. This is our very first podcast episode, so welcome everyone. It has been a long time coming, so it's hard to believe that we've actually made it here. Each week, Anna and I will be catching up for a coffee, although Anna doesn't actually drink coffee, and we'll be discussing a different nutrition topic. So make sure you let us know if there are any particular topics that you would like us to cover. So a new year always brings with it loads of new food and diet trends. So we thought what better way to kick off our first ever podcast than by discussing some of our predictions for what's going to be the biggest food and diet trends this year. Anna, do you want to kick us off? Yes. So let's start with talking about intermittent fasting because this is a diet a lot of you listening will be familiar with. And it's one that we predict is going to continue to grow in popularity this year. So for anyone who's listening who isn't fully aware, intermittent fasting is essentially a diet that cycles between periods of fasting with either no or a significant reduction in calories. And then there's periods of just eating normally. There are lots of different types of intermittent fasting diets, but the two most popular, I guess, approaches that we come across are the 5-2 diet, and that is where you eat normally five days a week, and then you eat very little, usually around a quarter of your usual of your regular intake, which is about 500 to 600 calories on two days of the week. And then the other one is the 16-8 diet, and that is where you eat within an eight-hour window and you fast for the remaining 16 hours. Right. Okay. And so can you tell us a little bit more about where the research is at when it comes to intermittent fasting? In terms of the research, it's actually still relatively new. We don't yet have long-term studies like we might for other, other diets like low-carb diets that have been around for much longer. And in addition to that, a lot of the studies that we do have have been done in animals. Now, these studies are still really important, but we can't draw straight comparisons. Humans are obviously really different to rats or mice or whatever. But what the evidence does suggest is that intermittent fasting diets may help people lose weight in the short term, at least. Although one thing I really want to point out here is that although it might help with weight loss, when researchers compared intermittent fasting diets with just a a typical calorie restricted diet, there didn't seem to be any difference in weight loss or body composition. So essentially what this means is that there are so many different ways that you can lose weight and the key is to look at what is going to work for you, what is sustainable, because this is all that matters. If you're going to pick up a diet and think, you know, I could do this for four weeks, maybe eight, maybe 12, but there's no way that this is lifelong, it's probably not worth doing. We, we really want to look at sustainability. And for some people, they might find that intermittent fasting is much easier for them to follow and it works within their lifestyle. Whereas others will find that just a general calorie restricted diet would work better for them. So it's really comes down to personal choice. And and there's lots of different ways that we can lose weight. In terms of what the research says um, 
in regards to how intermittent fasting can help with other health markers such as blood fats, blood pressure, insulin sensitivity, inflammation. Yes, there is some evidence that it can help with these other markers, which is great. But this is mostly related to the fact that, you know, if you follow a fasting diet, you're going to lose weight. So these improvements in health markers are usually a result of the weight loss. Um, So again, I'm going to come back to that sustainability point of view. Um, Now, I thought maybe, Alex, do you want to share with our listeners who an intermittent fasting diet might be suitable and who it wouldn't be suitable? Because that's quite um, important. Yeah, definitely. So certainly there are some situations and some people we would definitely recommend intermittent fasting for. However, it's not suitable for everyone. So firstly, let's have a look at who might it actually be suitable for. So for someone who is overweight, who is at risk of diabetes or another chronic disease, Intermittent fasting can be an approach that can help with weight loss, especially kick-starting that weight loss. I guess what we'd encourage is to make sure if, if that someone is you, that you're working with a health professional, a dietitian, to make sure that you're supported given it's probably going to be such a big lifestyle change for you. If you're someone that finds that you snack a lot in the evening, then something like the 16-8 approach might be helpful for you because it can provide a bit of a cutoff time to your eating. So Usually people would eat between, say, 11 a.m. and 7 p.m. So after 7 p.m., it sort of provides a time when you would stop that snacking. Yeah. And, and on that, I have some clients that are absolutely, they like that sort of rigid time frame to eat within because, you know, they say without that, they're just going to eat all the time. So they find that having that sort of guideline really helps them stop eating, you know, too late. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that self-imposed sort of timeline. If you're considering doing intermittent fasting, I guess you really have to understand your needs and your schedule if it's going to work for you. So for us personally, I think for Anna and I, it's not something that's going to be sustainable. We definitely get too grouchy not having breakfast. Um, we get we get grouchy when we haven't had you know food for an hour or two. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I actually have in the past tried the 16-8 approach. Um, I wanted to as research so I could sort of put myself in my client's shoes given this was something that I would recommend, I was recommending. And I am someone that prefers to exercise in the morning and I found that not eating until 11am really just didn't work for me. I was really hungry and, you know, it wasn't sort of helping me achieve the goals that I wanted given I was doing that exercise in the morning. Yeah, I remember when Alex did this and we she came into work and literally all morning she just kept speaking about food and how much she was looking forward to eating and I was like, this is why intermittent fasting doesn't work because you almost just become obsessed and you're just waiting for the next meal. So if that's you, do you think, like usually we'd say if that's how you're feeling when you're doing it, it's probably not right for you? Yeah, yeah. I definitely felt more tired and moody and it just really wasn't working. So I think it's good to think about your lifestyle before you embark on, on a diet like this. I guess in saying that, so people who we definitely wouldn't recommend intermittent fasting for, um, so people with a history of an eating disorder, an intermittent fasting regime is obviously very restrictive um, and it could result in overeating or binge eating. It wouldn't be suitable for someone who likes to eat every few hours like us. So if you like snacks and you like regular intake, then probably not suitable for people that might exercise in the morning this can be counterproductive for um, muscle recovery and muscle gains. If you um, have diabetes, it's not suitable for children or adolescents or for anyone that's pregnant or breastfeeding. Yeah. So our overall, I guess, summary here is that intermittent fasting diets 
can be safe and effective and they can help with weight loss, but it's not a magic diet. So please do not just jump on the bandwagon of this diet because, you know, your friend or colleague has done it and they said it's great. You need to think about your lifestyle and whether it's going to work for you. And, and, and as Alex mentioned before, if you are going to do it, speak to a dietitian to make sure you're doing it in, in a safe way and, and in a way that's not going to set you back at all in regards to your health goals. The next predicted trend we think we're going to see more of this year is an increase in plant-based food products and sustainable eating. So this comes alongside the rise that we're seeing in plant-based diets, whether it's vegan diets, vegetarian, flexitarian, or essentially any diet that encourages the consumption of more plant foods. So more and more people are looking to include plant foods in their diet for both health and environmental reasons. So with that, we're going to see some innovation happening. And I think we were actually a little bit of ahead of the trend here. So Alex and I launched our cookbook, um, which is a flexitarian cookbook a couple of years ago now, which has actually been hugely popular. So do you think maybe we were the reason for this massive worldwide trend we've seen in (laughs) plant-based eating? Yeah, I'm going to say it. You heard it here first on the Biting Truth podcast. We are the trendsetters. Joking, um, guys. No, but you, if you follow us on Instagram, you will know that we are really passionate about our flexitarian approach to eating where we don't cut out meat entirely, but we have a huge focus on plant foods in our diet. Yeah, so with this rise in plant diets, there has been and there will continue to be some really exciting innovation happening in terms of different plant-based foods and products. And, you know, if you go to the supermarket, you'll notice that there are more and more plant-based alternatives popping up. We're seeing things like plant-based burgers, plant-based chicken pieces, even things like fishless tuna are set to be Ooh. on the horizon. <laughs> actually, I think they that, that actually exists in the US, um, which, yeah, sounds very interesting. And, you know, I think some of these products can be great especially the ones that are made from whole food ingredients like legumes and nuts, for example, but others not so good. And what we'd really encourage you to do if you are purchasing any of these products is to make sure you're checking the ingredients list first. You know, in our research, we've come across some plant-based meats, for example, where the first ingredient is coconut oil. And this isn't really something that we would want to be getting from a meat alternative. So just be really mindful. Just because something is plant-based doesn't mean it's automatically healthier. Another super cool innovation in this area of food sustainability is this whole lab to fork concept. So you might be familiar with farm to fork, but lab to fork is an entirely new area and it's essentially meat made in a lab. So they get muscle stem cells from an animal and then they grow it in a lab to resemble something like a burger or a meat product. Yeah, it's so interesting and it's a bit mind-blowing to be honest. I think they're actually also doing this um, with dairy too, which, yeah. Yeah, I did read that actually. Um, And I also read that the first ever lab-grown hamburger, which they made back in 2013, so, you know, they've been working on this for a while, the burger took three months to make and do you know what it cost? It cost $280,000 to make this one burger. Crazy. <laughs> so at the time, they obviously thought that this isn't just never going to be an option. It's, you know, it takes way too long and it's way too expensive. However, now, you know, less than a decade later, really, it's actually becoming way more mainstream. And they've figured out, of course, technology, you know, ways to bring down the cost, bring down the time. 
it takes to make it. So I think it's pretty darn cool. I mean, it's obviously really weird and I don't know yet if I'd be ready to try a lab made burger. Would you? I don't know. I don't know. But, you know, when you think about it, this type of technology has the ability to fundamentally change the world in terms of food production. You know, it could perhaps significantly replace the way a lot of meat is re- is produced um, to help meet the growing demands. So, you know, it, it really could end up being a positive thing. I don't know. Um, yeah, I guess we'll have to see see where this goes. And I think we're both open to, you know, new products that pop up. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it might just become the norm in the future. Who knows? Exactly. Another cool innovation I saw really recently, actually, was this whole is this whole concept of upcycling. So I'd never heard of it before, but I was at the supermarket a couple of weeks ago and I noticed on one of the products that I bought, it actually said upcycled. So, you know, I went home and and as the nerd I am, I I researched it and I found that it's actually this big trend and I got pretty excited by the whole concept. So upcycled food is essentially food made from ingredients that otherwise would not have gone to human consumption. So the the whole upcycled food movement looks to use things like soft or bruised fruit, edible stems and leaves, maybe leftover pulp, some juices, those sorts of things in other ways. And I really think in the coming year, companies are going to take a hard look at the byproducts of their manufacturing processes and figure out ways of making them more consumable. So overall, I think this is a trend that we both are really excited to follow and see where it goes. The whole plant-based sort of sustainable eating trend, all the ones we've spoken about, yeah. Yeah, and obviously we're really passionate about consuming more plants, but I guess just a reminder that just because something is plant-based or a diet is plant-based doesn't mean that it's automatically healthier. And if you are interested in staying up to date with some of these new and exciting plant-based products that are going to be released, then make sure you keep an eye on our Instagram as we'll always share things that we come across that we think would be good for you guys. And you can find us at The Biting Truth. Um, so we're actually going to take a really quick break now to mention our podcast sponsors. And then afterwards, we'll be talking about gut health, drinking trends, and some plant-based milks. IGA know the importance of local better than anyone. Because if fresh is what you're looking for, it has to be local. It's why they source delicious, fresh produce from local suppliers wherever they can. And why every supermarket is independently owned by local families. You'll find that the shelves are stacked with everything a local community needs. And that each store is unique and tailored to their local community's tastes. So if you're looking for a supermarket where locals matter, pop into your local IGA today. Next up, we're talking all things gut health. And you may have heard of probiotics, prebiotics. Some of you may have come across products such as kombucha, kimchi, sauerkraut. These are all big buzzwords at the moment. I mean, if you follow us on Instagram for one, you'll see that we're always drinking kombucha. We're big fans of the stuff. But gut health in general is an area of nutrition where the research is evolving very quickly. And what I think is particularly interesting about the area of gut health is that up until, you know, just a few years ago, up until more recently, most people who have been interested in the health of their gut are those who have gut issues. So people with IBS, maybe, you know, diarrhea, constipation, celiac disease, maybe food allergies and intolerances in general. But what we're actually starting to see now, people without 
gut issues taking an interest in the health of their gut. And that's because they're understanding just how immensely powerful gut health can be. And this is a really great thing overall. Yeah. So I think people are realizing that good gut health goes beyond just having an upset an upset stomach or having some of these gut issues. And it's all about taking proactive steps to improve our overall digestive health. So we're learning more and more about the impact that our gut health plays on our, our body, um, even the fact that it's linked to our risk of chronic diseases, things like obesity, heart disease, skin conditions like eczema. And so I think it's because of this increase in gut health and more and more people um, jumping on on this trend that we're going to see more and more gut health related products appear on the market, which is really exciting. Um, and it's great to see, you know, in terms of innovation, we love that. But I think what's really important to be mindful of is that you need to be sceptical before uh, purchasing some of these things. So we're probably going to see more pills, supplements, teas, drinks, all promising to do wonders for our gut. But a lot of the time, these are going to be really expensive and they're going to be, you know, absolute crap. So this is an area that isn't necessarily regulated. So you just need to be really sceptical before you make these purchases. And it's kind of like any food trend, right? Anytime we see a trend in an area, you're always going to get brands and products popping up that are complete crap. They're not based on science and they're just looking to make money essentially. So, you know, whilst gut health is a great trend and we're all about it, you definitely need to be very mindful um, and, and just watch out for some of those, you know, marketing ploys that will get you in and and, and always just trying to avoid the quick fixes. Detox diets are crap. And we'll talk about that in another episode. (laughs) Yeah. If something sounds too good to be true, it very likely is. So yeah, overall, this is definitely a trend to keep an eye on. We've seen amazing results from our clients who have really focused on their gut health, but just be mindful that as this trend continues to grow, be skeptical about those products that you're going to see popping up on the supermarket shelves. So the next trend we want to talk about is actually non-alcoholic drinks because this industry seems to be booming every week. Alex and I receive emails from new brands and companies that have launched a new non-alcoholic or low alcoholic beverage. And when we started doing some research into the area, we actually found that the whole non and low alcohol beverage market has seen an increase in the last year, whereas the regular alcohol market has seen a slight decline. And look, this is probably related to, you know, the broader trend we're seeing in that people are drinking less um, and this whole mindful drinking trend. This is this concept we keep hearing about, mindful drinking, and we love it because it sounds like mindful eating, which is, you know, a huge topic that we will cover in another podcast episode. But essentially, mindful drinking is about taking a moment to pause and consider how much and what you choose to drink. It's about being more mindful of the choices you make. And look, perhaps it means swapping for a non-alcoholic option in some circumstances. Yeah, the fact that there's been this shift in drinking behaviour has then driven that product innovation. So we've seen big alcohol brands exploring alternatives and there's also more and more new brands popping up on the market that have a focus on producing 
tasty alcohol-free drinks. And some of these are quite impressive. If you've tasted any, you'll know that they can actually taste quite similar to alcohol, but they don't contain any alcohol. And the flavor combinations, it's pretty amazing. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the key thing, I guess, to, to know is that just because a drink is alcohol-free doesn't mean that it's necessarily going to be cheaper or any healthier. And in our research, we've definitely come across a few examples where the non-alcoholic option is still quite high in added sugars. Um, And in terms of cost, you know, producing such high quality alcohol-free wine, beer and other drinks is actually really expensive. So they're not necessarily going to be any cheaper. Yeah. And I think that's an important point to make because often when you're going for a non-alcoholic option, you compare it to say the price of a a can of, of Coke or a soft drink or something, which is obviously very cheap. And so you think like, what? Why am I paying so much for this other non-alcoholic option? But when we are talking about non-alcoholic beverages right now, we're sort of talking about, like Alex said, we're talking about, say, alcohol-free gin and tonics or alcohol-free wines, ones that that, that taste and look exactly like the alcohol-containing counterpart, but they're alcohol-free. So there's a lot more, you know, costs and processes that go into um, producing those sorts of drinks. So we can't just compare it to, say, the cost of a soft drink. Um, it's an entirely different market. Yeah, and I think the reason that it's a very different thing to a soft drink is because drinking is not just about quenching your thirst or or getting drunk. Um, people are looking for these non-alcoholic drinks to help create that social event or that ritual or that experience that they might get when they're having alcohol. And I personally have some friends that choose not to drink um, and they, you know, they've told me they've been to restaurants where they've had mocktails that have been paired with the menu items. So it's sort of really taking it to a whole nother level and it's definitely something that we think is going to continue. And in summary um, of this whole non-alcoholic beverage market, we think it's great. It's great that there are more options for those who are not drinking. And it's also just great that it's becoming more socially acceptable not to drink. But of course, as always, just be mindful about the the non-alcoholic options that you're going for and whether they're healthy or not, if that's what you're looking for. And the final trend we want to look at is plant-based milks. So plant-based milks have certainly been growing in popularity over the past few years. I know you can see at the supermarket, there's almost an entire aisle dedicated to these plant-based milks. And I guess the increase in, in these milks is probably for a few reasons. So it could be due to the rise in people adopting vegan and plant-based diets that we've spoken about. Um, it could be due to the increase in allergies and intolerances, but also just generally people preferring the taste of these kind of milks. So I personally am someone that, well, we both are, that we can, uh, we personally prefer to consume dairy milks. However, When I'm drinking coffee, I actually enjoy soy milk in my coffee and that's purely for the taste above anything. And we want to make it really clear that we still eat dairy foods and we believe that dairy is a great fit in our diets. However, there are certainly some plant-based options appearing on the supermarket shelves that do weigh up pretty well in terms of nutrition. And I mean, it can be pretty darn confusing when you're at the supermarket and there's just this whole array of plant-based milks and what to go for. And if you 
do want a plant-based milk for whatever reason, a few things to keep in mind out for. The most important thing you want to look at is whether it is fortified or not. Regardless of what plant-based milk you're going for, it must have added calcium. So essentially on the front or the back of the packaging, it will say fortify with calcium or added calcium. This is absolutely critical and almost all sort of types of plant-based milks will have a calcium fortified option. Other thing you just want to keep an eye out for is how much protein the milk contains. And look, this only matters if you're actually consuming that milk as a source of protein. So as an example, if you like to make a smoothie for breakfast and you use almond milk in your smoothie and and you think that you're getting protein from that almond milk, unfortunately, almond milk is actually really low in protein. It's not an unhealthy milk option. We're not saying that. It's just low in protein. So if you were using it in a smoothie and you wanted a plant-based milk, you might be better off going for something like soy or oat milk as they are higher in protein. However, if you're only having a dash of it in your coffee, then it doesn't really matter. Go with whatever one you want. And I think we just really want to make clear is that although plant-based milks are perfectly healthy and they're a great option, they still, from a nutritional point of view, do not match dairy milks in terms of the protein levels and the essential amino acid um, profiles that they contain. Um, In terms of the most popular plant-based milk, currently that is soy milk, uh, although oat milk seems to be growing really quickly. So who knows, maybe it will take over soy milk this year. And I know, Anna, when you were doing a bit of research into this, you came across some exciting new milks that we might be seeing more of. So do you want to share with us what they were? Yeah, because this was really surprising, actually. Um, So if any of you listeners are potato lovers, this beloved root vegetable is actually one of the latest discoveries of a food that can be made into a milk, believe it or not. Yep, that is right. Potato milk derived, milk derived from potatoes. (laughs) And anyone that knows you, Anna, will know that one of your favourite foods is sold a mini chips or some sort of variety of potatoes. So and hot gonna, chips. Yeah, are we going to be adding uh, potato milk to the <laughs> potato repertoire of foods that you enjoy? Look, who knows? Never say never. So potato milk is set to be a big trend in 2022. It's dairy-free, fat-free. Who knows? Maybe it'll taste great. I, I actually look forward to trying that one, although, you know, I, I'm not sure. I like potatoes, but as a milk. I might leave that one for you. <laughs> um, a couple of other plant-based milk options to keep an eye out for a grain-based milk milk so things like barley milk are thought to become a thing this year also some new nut-based milks on the market so we are obviously quite familiar with almond milk but walnut milk and pistachio milk are some new ones we might see and then of course there are seed milk so things like hemp seed milk and sunflower seed milk <laughs> well it looks like we have a lot to look forward to in the plant-based milk space yeah absolutely We hope you enjoyed our deep dive into some of our food and diet predictions for 2022. Thanks so much for listening to the Biting Truth podcast by host Anna Debenham and myself, Alex Parker. If you like this episode, please support us by following our podcast and leave us a rating and review. That's all for today. Thank you so much, guys. We had so much fun and we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.